so it's you've seen uh, a migration out of farming communities because there's no jobs and so now there's not even a grocery store in a lot of these little towns in west texas and so the demise of small rural communities has been one of the outcomes of uh, the implementation and the adoption of gmos and so when you think about the true cost of, of what this has meant to farmers and lower profitability in many instances, being on a chemical treadmill, the loss of jobs in rural communities, then you know I think organic agriculture, on the other hand, brings all that back, that it really could help stop that urban migration. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Padia Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Larray Pepper, Managing Director and Co-Founder of the Textile Exchange. Our guests are entrepreneurs who have started traditional for-profit businesses. Miss Pepper is unique and, in my opinion, groundbreaking in her efforts in bringing organic cotton back to the United States. Welcome, Larry. It's such a pleasure to be here with you, and I look forward to exploring, yeah, this journey to organic cotton and more regenerative solutions in the cotton world. So let's start at the very beginning. Cotton has such a deep history in the wars, uh, civil wars, in the freedom struggles. How and when did cotton come to the United States? As you mentioned, cotton has a long history in the world uh, because it goes back to days of Egypt and, and uh, you know, the old, old worlds and countries and things like that. And in Latin America, uh, cotton has a long history in the world. And certainly um, in the United States, it goes back to the very beginning when it was settled um, in the you know 1800s and things like that. So, and it's grown. Cotton has to be grown where it's hot. You have to have heat units to make cotton, especially longer staple cotton. And so, all around the Mediterranean, like around the equator areas, of course, India has a strong reputation, and and parts of China as well. So, you have to have those heat units. So, where it's hot. I think cotton is grown in over 63 different countries in the United States. It's that Southern stretch all the way from Southern California, all the way over to Florida. So yeah, strong and rich history of cotton in a lot of rural communities around the world. So this beautiful material is steeped in colonialism, slavery, and capitalism, especially in the U.S. context, right? Indeed. Indeed, because even now, you know, cotton is a pretty intensive crop. And in those early days before there were tractors and around the world, it's still a very labor intensive crop. And in some regions, very chemically intensive as well. And so, but cotton is one of those dynamic fibers. It brings so many positive things to communities as well. It's a cash crop. It also, by weight, the majority of the harvest is seed. And that seed goes into oils and cattle feed. Uh, many times the stalks are harvested for kitchen fires when you're in Turkey or Uganda and uh, parts of India and other places. And so the cotton plant's a very versatile crop. It can be grown in small amounts of rainfall as well as higher volumes of rainfall and in irrigation settings. And so it's a very versatile crop. But you're right, it is steeped in controversy from you know labor practices even now, forced labor situations in other countries, as well as, you know, like you said, there's a lot of controversy when it comes to labor in cotton and chemicals in cotton. So one of the essential things for cotton 
was labor. And that created this whole system of slavery in the United States, in southern United States. Well, I wouldn't say that cotton created slavery. I think slavery was there and it was used in all kinds of agricultural crops and even factory and other settings. And so certainly cotton was a very um, labor intensive crop in those early years and still is in many countries. It's hand harvested and hand planted. So it, it is a labor intensive crop. The United States, of course, has evolved in many places to use a lot of mechanical tractors and uh, harvesting and things like that. So it's very mechanical right now and not as labor intensive in the United States. But the majority of the cotton grown is still very labor intensive uh, and hand harvested. And it may come as a surprise to many of our listeners that U.S., I believe, is the largest producer of cotton in the world. It kind of depends upon the year. There's a three-way, China, India, and the United States, followed closely by Brazil, are the top growing countries in, in the world right now. So it kind of depends upon the year and the harvest and prices of cotton. It'll rotate into soy or corn or you know other crops. So usually U.S. is in the top three. Especially because you don't think of the U.S. economy as being primarily agrarian. Like, for instance, India, still about 60 to... 65% of the population, the jobs they have, they have it in the agricultural sector. That's certainly very true. There's, um, you know, fewer jobs right now in the ag sectors in the United States simply because so much of it has gone to, you know, more mechanized uh, solutions. So most of our listeners have never had the opportunity to see or visit a cotton farm or a cotton field. Mm. Could you explain how the cotton from the plant is converted into fiber and <laughs> fabric. Well, it's be great to take you on a journey of what actually happens in a field and turns a little seed into like a t-shirt or a pair of socks. So cotton takes about a year to grow. Um, so for us in West Texas, where I grew up, that means we're going to plant when the soil temperatures are high enough sometime in May and we get a planting rain. And it'll um, mature and grow sometime until September, October. As organic farmers, we wait until we get a hard freeze because cotton is actually a little tree or a little bush that, you know, loses its leaves when you get a hard freeze. So as organic farmers, we wait for that freeze so we don't use chemicals to defoliate and then we mechanically harvest. And so you take a whole year, you know, to plant and grow a crop and, you know, see it come to full harvest, which is very rewarding. But in the meantime... Parallel intended to that, the brands and retailers are, you know, by that time that cotton is harvested in November and December, it won't get to the spinning mill until, you know, February, March turned into products. So it's actually another year before that cotton turns into products and goes through a yarn and a knitting and a weaving and a spinning process. And so the supply chain and the supply network that cotton goes through is extremely long and goes through a lot of different hands. And so it's going to have a separate mill for spinning into yarn. It'll go to a mill, a different mill that is knitting or weaving those t-shirts or that pair of jeans that you're wearing. It goes to a different place for cut and sew and to a different place to be, you know, dyed and finished and packaged and eventually to the brand and then off to the consumer. So from seed to a pair of jeans that you can wear is about a two-year process. So it's a long and lengthy supply network. When you're working with the entire supply network, then you've got to be able to think flexibly and holistically across the whole situation. And historically, the whole cotton production increased with the invention of the ginning machine. What is 
the ginning machine? What does it do exactly? Well, the Whitney ginning, obviously before that, when you think about um, an orange, you peel the orange and then it comes off in sections and it may have seeds. Well, a little cotton bowl is very similar. It's going to open um, and that lint in the cotton will have to dry out. But by by weight, about 80% of that yield is actually seed. And so the seed have to be separated from the cotton. And a lot of time that was done by hand with combs and things like that. So it, before that, it was, you know, hand grown, hand spun, you know, and woven in very small amounts. So having a gin that can actually separate the seed from the fiber did revolutionize the cotton industry around the world. And so now you see the infrastructure of a group of farmers, you know, in a 40 to 60 mile radius around one gin that will be ginning all of that cotton because they are large plants that, you know, handle a lot of cotton. It's not only important to have the land and the heat units in the right region for cotton, but you also have to have the infrastructure and have the gin in order to make it commercially viable. I try to be as mindful as possible in my purchase. Mm -hmm. You know, I try to be a mindful consumer. I try to choose and buy clothing, which is made out of natural fibers and almost always 100% cotton because it's natural. So what's wrong with just non-organic cotton? Well, I think that it's not so much as what's wrong as what's right about organic cotton. Organic cotton takes you on a journey with more regenerative practices uh, that eliminates the use of toxic and persistent pesticides. Right now, conventional cotton will use synthetic fertilizers in order to maximize yields. Uh, also, fungicides to treat the seeds. Many times, herbicides will be used, especially when we talk about genetically modified cotton situations. And uh, then you have growth regulators and you have insecticides for bugs. And so there's a lot of chemicals currently used in the production of cotton. So when you go to an organic system and a regenerative system, you're changing at the very baseline, the soils. You're enriching the soils with green manure crops or composting and especially crop rotation. You're building an ecosystem and increasing your biodiversity because of crop rotations and insectary strips. So it is about promoting life in that soil and in that farm and in that community, because then you're creating the ecosystem and habitat for, you know, other bugs and good bugs and uh, the beneficial insects that take care of your pests and problems. And so it is about building a system around life in the soil, life in the community, life for that farm and for that farm family. And so I think it's about the positive things that organic production systems bring to agriculture and the communities. So you're a fifth generation cotton farmer. Indeed. <laughs> Been a while in our family. Talk about your journey in creating textile exchange. How did that come about? Wasn't your family tempted to use the high yielding seeds and the pesticides, which in a jiffy got rid of all the bugs? Well, fortunately, we lived in West Texas where we do get the hard freeze. So that does take the pressure, some of the pressures off the insects because of the hard freeze. But it also, again, like I told you, we don't have to defoliate. But you have to go back and understand in part, I'm an organic farmer because I don't know any better. And I certainly will stay an organic farmer because I have seven grandchildren. So it's part of my heritage as well as my legacy. So I had the blessings of being born into a very stubborn German you know, farm family that we were stewards of the land. We had a different philosophical approach. And I remember when other farmers in the 1960s, I was a child and I was granddaddy's girl and we were walking around that you know, we'd look at the soil and he's like, we are not going to 
spray the insecticides and the things that the other farmers are spraying. We're going to work with our land and, and with the cotton in order to be good stewards. Organic wasn't a word, you know, back then at that point in time. I remember testing the dirt, you know, he'd squeeze it to see how it was and did it have enough moisture to plant. And he'd smell, we, we have good dirt. It's healthy enough to eat. And he as I got older, he said, you know, insecticide and pesticide and herbicide, these all have death, you know, we're talking and we're, we need to promote life. So I have to say I was brainwashed as a child of how to be responsible stewards for the land and to take care of it. So it takes care of us. Growing up that way and knowing that you have other solutions and are there pheromone traps or because you, you're not killing the bugs, your good bugs are there too. And there'd be years when there was pressures and we would buy more ladybugs and and do more, you know, beneficial insects to to put out there. In fact, I will tell you, beware of a husband that comes in late in the evenings with a big burlap sack that says, how would you like to go for a moonlight drive? And you're like, hmm, because you're driving in the four-wheeler, reaching down into this big burlap bag with straw and millions of ladybugs crawling all over as you're throwing them out into the cotton. So there are other ways, you know, for every two, there is a fro. And so it is about setting up that ecosystem and balanced habitat and taking advantage of of what you need to put in as a support system for the crops that you're growing. And I feel that there's a movement now to natural farming even over and about organic farming. Yeah, it's really growing. We're finding people that, you know, they may not want to be organic, but they want to adopt more holistic and regenerative farming practice. So I think that's one of the things that's rewarding for me, even though while organic agriculture may be a small percentage of what is grown, we were certainly the tip of the spear. So when you think of you know, really making that point of impact and definition for consumers. But we have certainly influenced agriculture in a broader way. There are several more sustainable initiatives and programs and standards that are out there. You know, we started the enabling legislation in the late 1980s. Our farm was certified in 1991. And so I have to say it's good that we have people on the ramp toward more sustainable, responsible, organic and regenerative. So it is about getting people on that track. And imagine what the difference could be, especially when we look at climate change, if every farmer really took care of their soils and started really aggressively and proactively reducing greenhouse gases, that would be phenomenal. You know, and then that next step could certainly be building that ecosystem and increasing biodiversity. We're very excited about the direction of travel and and hope that more consumers become supportive of, of organic and more regenerative agriculture. So do you have heritage seeds that you use? No, unlike food crops, um, those heritage seeds for cotton would yield a very short staple. In fact, in India, they have some heritage cotton as well that is very short staple. So for the mechanized spinning mills and high-speed spinning frames, cotton has gone through an extensive breeding program over the years in order to have the longer staple, better micronaire, more consistency in the crops in order to, you know, have the finer fabrics and different things like that. And, and of course you have some of the cottons that like Egyptian cotton and South Sea Island cotton and Pima that have the longer staples. But uh, for the majority of the upland cotton, it has been bred now. So you have to use, you know, some hybrid seeds that have been bred for that quality in, to be available in commercial spinning mills and factories. I think the cotton in India is called Desi cotton. Exactly right. right. I was like, the name is slipping my mind, but yes. And so when you think of that, then it's only applications are really um, some hand spinning. I actually have come across fabrics made out of desi cotton. Mm -hmm. It's a different feel, but the weave is kind of interesting because it's not so fine. 
and long. It's got a lot of texture and life. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. The seeds that you use have been bred. So how is that different from the BT cotton, which is kind of demonized by <laughs> well, everybody? Yeah, there's traditional breeding programs where you literally cross-pollinate and it's selective, just like if you were breeding goats or sheep. Let's say that you want to have a herd of brown goats or, you know, that you're going to only, you're going to select those out. So you're going to select the qualities and save the seeds that are generating the qualities that you want to see in the next generation. And so it's just traditional breeding programs like you'll going to see in tomatoes that have certain qualities or or corn that has a certain quality. That would be traditional breeding mechanisms. When you talk about genetically modified organisms, it's taking the natural breeding program into a science-based practice where they literally splice a different kind of plant or a different species or different something into the DNA of a cotton plant. So in the case of genetically modified organisms, they've... um, put in like things that fight insects and probably one of the most common ones in the United States is for um, herbicide control so they can overspray the cotton and so Roundup or um, other herbicides can be oversprayed. So those are foreign to the natural process and breeding process of cotton. So there's traditional breeding, which is, you know, natural selection, which is practiced around the world and is totally okay and organic. Then there's Uh, what they're doing with the gene uh, modifications of putting in a foreign matter into a plant. That's the best explanation I've heard about the difference between natural breeding and the GMO, because I, as far as possible, try to buy non-GMO things, Mm -hmm. heritage tomatoes and things Mm -hmm. of that sort. And, And most people, they say, you know, things are always bred and crossbred. And I have not have a really good. <laughs> I'm turning it off for polka dot goats or, you know, and brown cotton that's naturally bred or pink roses or, you know, let's turn it into a purple carnation. There's, there's all those things that are about natural breeding. And I'm all for that and the experimentation in my garden. But when you talk outside the natural scope, then yeah, you're interfering with nature. One of the most important things after growing the cotton is trying to sell it. <laughs> so, and the ginning, the farmers who are who gin in this facility, do they belong to a cooperative or are they just individual people who, you know, just have job work done by this facility? You know, it's really interesting. And it's all the above when you're talking about farmers in different regions. Uh, there's all around the world, there's farmers that are organized into cooperatives uh, that, you know, the gin may even be a cooperative. And and so farmers get together and, and meet the needs you know, by working together with each other. Sometimes the gins are separately owned and, the, you know, the ginners will contract with the farmers around to grow cotton. Sometimes the farmers are associated with a mill and they've had a longstanding relationship and, and grow cotton in that geographic region. That's especially common in India. And so the farmers are grouped into various groups that are based upon a geography or a location in a specific area. And so there's all kinds of different ways that farmers are organized. And But a gin is a that first point of transaction from the farmer to being sold. And so sometimes those are, the, you know, the fiber is bought directly by the mill. It's brought by a merchant that then sells it to the mill. So you're right. Selling is, is the crunch of the matter of, and it's been one of the places when you're starting to build a different kind of market, like for organic cotton, then, you know, you may grow it, but 
you can't grow it on a maybe. You can't invest in uh, organic production systems and feeding your soil and building the ecosystem on a maybe, especially when there's more competition for some organic food crops. And so to grow organic cotton, you must have that market leakage and that market partner. Before we started the organic exchange and then evolved into the textile exchange, we formed the Texas Organic Cotton Marketing Cooperative in 1993. So the deal was they'd grow it and I'd sell it. And we started talking to brands and retailers it had a reputation for really having those environmental practices and CSR programs. And uh, as we started working voluntarily together, it's like, hmm, you know, we need to have access to information. We needed harmonization of standards. So that was the mindset of partnering and working together. And together we can make a difference when we formed the exchange. And so we formed that in uh, 2002 uh, with the mindset of let's identify barriers to growth and take that collective action. And so barriers to growth is harmonization of standards that what is an organic in Turkey isn't the same thing in Tanzania or Texas, then let's work on harmonization of standards. If access to information is important, then let's get together, do the surveys and write a report. So we've been doing organic cotton marketing reports for many years. Mm -hmm. Um, If access to information regarding consistency on data and working on impact data is important, then let's set those standards. Uh, So over the years, we've done what we can to identify those barriers to growth and then take action as a community. So now uh, Textile Exchange has over 420 some odd members that uh, have bought into this philosophical approach of working together to make the market happen. And now we're working not only in cotton, cotton is our core foundation fiber, uh, but we're also working, you wear more than one kind of fiber. I know you wear a lot of natural fibers, but brands offer a portfolio of fibers. And so the things that we learned in organic cotton about integrity, about implementation of best practices, about uh, giving clear messages from the brands into the marketplace uh, to send those clear market signals are the same things you need to know for responsible wool or recycled polyester, or, you know, responsible down, or now we've got responsible alpaca. And so all those best practices are what we need to do to change and drive positive impacts for the solution of not only you as a consumer, but what we need to do for our planet as well. Talking about working with brands, I'm trying to recall the name of the lady. Um, She had a verbal contract with Levi Strauss. You talking about the colored cotton? Yes, the colored cotton, the lovely that lady. Sally Fox. Yeah. Yes, yes. Oh my God, that her story is so sad. It's inspirational as well, but it's so interesting because you know when you talk about like Peruvian fibers and 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 going into hand wovens, natural colored cottons present some challenges for commercial adoption of like consistency and discoloration and sunlight and fading and and so yeah, Levi certainly made a valiant uh, effort. Uh, but it didn't gain commercial traction in part because of the inherent nature of colored cotton and its unique characteristics and qualities. And it was very short staper. It really needed more breeding time in order to get to that quality of length of fiber. You had to blend it quite a bit with longer staple. And and so I know Sally well, and she's still at it. And most of it's going into yarns and, and home use and, and things like that. But there's been still significant challenges for getting it into commercial adoption and having traction for scale. I'd like to step back again to the impact of BT cotton. BT okay. cotton impacts 
people financially, the soil, and the environment. Could you elaborate on each of those things? And even emotionally, I'd like to add a fourth thing. It affects them emotionally too. You know, it's really interesting, the shifts that we've changed since uh, genetically modified organ- organisms and, and like you say, BT cotton have, have entered into the marketplace. Some of the farmers really felt like that it was going to be a solution for really increasing yield and productivity, and therefore they could make more money on that land. But it has not really delivered on the dream and the promise. Instead, what has happened is that over time, Insects build up resistance, and especially the weeds. Uh, The weeds build up resistance, and all of a sudden, Roundup is no longer a viable uh, tool in order to inhibit those weeds from growing. And so they're having to use stronger and stronger herbicides in order to have the kill that they need on those weeds. You know, it's one of those things of you really need to get rid of weeds and cotton. They compete for moisture, and they ruin the quality of the cotton when you harvest that cotton alongside the weeds. And so weeds are one of the largest challenges farmers have around the world when it comes to cotton. And so certainly having a solution, what they thought would be an easy solution of, I plant the cotton, the weeds come up, and then I take an airplane or over the ground. And so I'm spraying, you know, all of my acres with an herbicide. They didn't realize the monster that they would be creating uh, with resistance to these chemicals. And so they're now on a treadmill, a very dangerous treadmill, because every year more resistance happens. They're going back into the closets and pulling out stronger chemicals in order to kill the weeds. And it's like that ripple in the pond. The, The farmer gets on that you know, financial treadmill, the seeds cost more, the chemicals cost more. So he may be trying to grow more cotton, but the crop has more costs. And so it's actually proving to be less profitable for crops. And you've seen the horror stories in India where the farmers go into so much debt and it's starting to happen here in the U.S. There's farmer suicide lines because farmers are going to so much debt because of the the story of this is the, the magic seed and the magic chemicals that can help you be the most productive and profitable. And we're seeing a lot of resistance. The other thing that happens is before there were all these chemicals, there were actually people working in the fields. There were um, people that did more plowing and did hoeing. I hoed cotton as a kid. That was a part of life. And certainly, you know, teenage kids from high school, it's economics 101, work and money are directly related. And that was summer jobs for a lot of people. So it's interesting to see a little town go from playing 11-man football. They've lost all their farm labor. The farm laborers moved to town and getting, you know, jobs in town. And that town is now having only one kindergarten classroom rather than two, and they're playing six-man football. And so it's you've seen uh, a migration out of farming communities because there's no jobs. And so now there's not even a grocery store in a lot of these little towns in West Texas. And so the demise of small rural communities has been one of the outcomes of uh, the implementation and the adoption of GMOs. And so when you think about the true cost of, of what this has meant to farmers and lower profitability in many instances, being on a chemical treadmill, the loss of jobs in rural communities, then, you know, I think organic agriculture, on the other hand, brings all that back, that it really could help stop that urban migration, that could provide meaningful jobs in healthy environments on those farms. And it, it changes the dialogue and more jobs and more economic opportunities on the farm when you think about organic production. So not only is the impact on just the soil or the environment, it's the whole society changes. Your whole social structure has changed. Exactly. 
How do organic cotton farmers take care of the weeds? <laughs> it's done through precision plowing. And so um, really having some good plows and effective drivers on those tractors to precision plow and get really close to the cotton to get rid of all the weeds in the middle. But the only way to get rid of weeds in, you know, in the row itself is to manually eliminate it by hoeing or pulling them. And so in the summertime, we provide a lot of jobs. And like I said, um, our teenagers, that's a part of their economics lessons and, and college kids come out, you know, because they want summer labor and work. So it's literally, if you're working in a garden, then you start on one end of that row and you go to the other. And if there's a weed, you you take it out. How much of the cotton that is grown in the United States organic? The majority of the cotton in the United States is um, GMO, well over 83%, I believe. And so you've got another 10 to 15% that is using more sustainable practices. And I believe organic is less than 1% of the production in the United States at this time. So what can we do to promote more organic cotton? Because it's tied into so many different things that are required to support this method of farming, right? It's you need to probably incentivize, you need to have uh, even knowledge in what you are doing right now. Well, I think the biggest barrier when we've talked to our brands, the biggest barrier that they have is they feel like consumers are not willing to pay more for organic product products. And, and so the biggest obstacle then becomes price. So the real question here is how do we change our current business models from a price paradigm to a value paradigm? So when does a consumer say, I am going to make a choice about purchasing this organic pair of socks because of quality and because it's biodegradable and you know, I'm going to make a choice to buy value. Uh, so I think part of it goes back to educating consumers of what difference does it make when you buy an organic pair of sheets and uh, the impacts, the positive impacts that can be created, um, whether that's organic food or fiber. And so I think consumer education is really important. Uh, we're going to have to get past the cheapest thing. We're going to have to buy value. And that's going to be, you know, part of consumer education. We need to send those clear market signals as consumers to our brands and our favorite brands and say, hey, why aren't you guys doing organic socks or organic bedding or organic jeans? We want to support agriculture that is healthy for people and planet. And so I think consumers need to send clear messages. And at the same time, brands need to really relook at their business models. There's a number of brands that have very strong organic programs, and they've done that by figuring out a new dynamic and a business model. They're talking to their consumers uh, to let them know the value of what they're bringing. So there are some brands that are certainly figuring out the business model and the importance of educating their consumers. I would say the market is much stronger in Europe than it is in the United States. Uh, there's just greater environmental awareness there. And so those consumers are buying and making choices for positive and proactive solutions when it comes to food and fiber choices. So education will be key. Understanding the values key. I'm a teacher at heart. So I think it's education, education. <laughs> Or education, you know, whether it's talking to our government about creating preferential tariffs for preferred fibers and responsible and organic fibers, 
um, and consumers being willing to invest in value and brands being willing to deliver that. So um, I think that there's um, strong importance right now for education all across the board. So how is the cotton priced? So is it a commodity and are the prices determined by that? Yeah, when you look at conventional cotton, it's totally that roller coaster of up and down based upon, you know, supply, demand and market signals. And the reality is, is those prices for conventional cotton have no basis on the cost of production. I think Texas a and says it costs over 80 some odd cents per pound here in the United States to grow conventional cotton. And I think the market is somewhere around 60 cents. And so farmers are planting other crops, they're cannibalizing their equity, and farmers are working off farm to support the farm uh, because it's the farm won't even support the farm, much less the family. So um, it's really interesting dynamics. And so organic, what we work with the farmers and the brands for organic is to basically decouple and to come to, uh, here's a fair price for the investment that the farmer is making. It takes the brands off those roller coasters of conventional prices. And it, it takes the farmers, you know, off those roller coasters as well in order, again, to come to an agreement in the marketplace for strong, consistent, stable prices for the value that's getting delivered. So we talk about creating fair prices for farmers. And do you think if more and more farmers adopt organic methods, because many of these farms are contiguous, right? So if your soil improves and then your neighbors all around, their soil improves, they have the worms, they have the bugs. So it creates... Uh, betterment for everybody. Indeed. You get to the point, yeah, where you have these green zones um, or organic zones, that would be lovely. Um, Build a bigger ecosystem. And so you're talking about, like you say, a, a bigger ecosystem. But it's amazing what you can do on in a small area. You can build that ecosystem and then expand that. And hopefully your neighbors want to join in. They see what's happening with healthy soils. You've got to get them off that, you know, financial treadmill, though. And, and there there is a risk for um, making those investments. So it truly needs to be that market-driven solution. Maybe once this ecosystem is created, maybe the cost of doing it will reduce, right? Yes and no. In theory, you know, when you have larger scale and, and larger volume, there can be some cost savings because you're able to ship full truckloads and things like that. But the reality is most of the areas where cotton is farmed is where we have extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. And so the current pricing structure, like you say, it goes back to a little more than slave labor. It goes mm -hmm. back to colonialism. It goes back to some inherent labor problems are involved where uh, it, the current pricing system has created the poverty and the pollution and the problems, quite frankly. When we look at the price of cotton and where cotton is grown, um, it's the current pricing system and the business models that, that have actually created the poverty and the pollution and the problems. So we've really got to look beyond that of how do we solve uh, the extreme poverty that we're finding in so many of the cotton regions around the world. And so this is about a fair price to the farmers and breaking this cycle of poverty. 
And so I think cotton becomes a powerful tool then for driving change and getting value back to the farmers that are, you know, making those changes and, and working those long days and hot suns, you know, to, to grow the cotton that you love to sleep in and you love to play in. And so cotton is an, an amazing crop and a wonderful crop. And it's going to be important that we protect the cultures that are growing it and find a way to make it fair for everyone that's involved. On that note, thank you so, so much for coming on Mindful Businesses. It's been a pleasure to be here. And I do agree. Mindful is where we need to be. We need to be conscious of the decisions we're making. Thank you again. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send us a message on our Facebook or Instagram page. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with a friend. Like and share our Instagram page. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Tatum Gale composed the music for this podcast. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.